it will be a consolidation between those who are in the market since a long time and have the manufacturing power and those who can define an ecosystem that enable them to differentiate and be a more attractive brand through the software defined vehicle. On this episode of Embedded Insiders, the Weary team recounts their adventures at the recent CES show in Las Vegas. From software-defined vehicles to the matter interoperability standard and everything in between, Brandon Rich and associate editor Tiara Oliver discuss their favorite show trends that will shape the tech world of tomorrow. Later, Pedro Lopez Estepa of Real-Time Innovations joins to discuss how the connectivity company is preparing for the imminent vehicle architecture shifts that will be required to support the software-defined vehicles of the future. Not only will this transition impact the number and performance of onboard embedded processors, it will also reshape automotive value chains to the point that whoever controls the software supply chain controls the car. Finally, Rich and Vin are back with another edition of Dev Talk, where they'll be discussing why C is here to stay for the long haul despite the popularity of scripting languages like Python and JavaScript. Hello, and welcome to the Embedded Insiders podcast. I'm Brandon Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Embedded Computing Design, here with Rich Nass, who's the Executive Vice President and Brand Director of Embedded Computing Design, and isn't there somebody else? Is there? Did you hear some rustling in the corner there, Rich? I think I might have. Who could that be? <laughs> Who is that? It's me. <laughs> Who's me? Tiara Oliver, Associate Editor at Embedded Computing Design. Hey, didn't well, I see you at CES last week? I don't think we saw each other, but we did <laughs> meet a few of the same people. Yes, I heard a rumor you were there. Everybody was talking about how both of you guys were there. Amongst the 110,000 people. Yes. CES was last week. Uh, for those of you who don't know, really quickly, actually, as an aside, Tira produces the Embedded Insiders podcast. So she's the one keeping Rich and I on our toes, in line, buttoned up, whatever you, whatever way you say, managing us uh, for the Embedded Insiders. So all of your praise should actually be headed her way. That being said, all three of us were actually at the Consumer Electronics Show last week. Time we, to interrupt you. Yes. It is not the Consumer Electronics Show. Oh, did they change it to just CES now? Yeah, that happened a couple of years ago. They took away the words because it's so much more than consumer, mostly the, the automotive spin. They said it's just called CES and the letters don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> Which is, I'm sure we're going to get into that because there's another company that you and I met with, Rich, who the same thing is true of, uh, being AMS, AMS Osram, actually. But you know, there's there's actually I hate to derail the discussion, but there's a few companies that I've just been thinking about this the last few days. The one who did it first that I'm aware of was IBM. IBM right. just doesn't stand right. They used to be international business machines. Now it's just IBM. The other one that happened recently was NI. Yeah, NI. Formerly National Instruments is now just NI. They better uh do a better job of letting everybody know because I thought that they changed their name to me. <laughs> there you go. That's a all the, the Monty Python bands out there. But <laughs> um, anyway, hey, I, hey, you just brought up something else that's interesting. 
Do you know that this is not confirmed, but somebody who is pretty smart told me today that the programming language Python is named after the television show Monty Python. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I hate to do unconfirmed and I haven't had a chance to look it up, but yeah, I hadn't heard that either. That's pretty funny. Yeah, it is. Huh. What's Rust named after? My first car. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, well, CES, one of the biggest, well, at one time, one of the biggest trade shows in the world. I don't know where we stand now. I was there, one of the very few who was there in 2022, when there had to have been 20, 30,000 people there at most. Bounced back this year, there were over 100,000. I've heard estimates in the 110 to 120,000 range, which is a far cry from the nearly quarter of a million people that attended CES at its peak in the late teens. But nevertheless, uh, it was it was busy. Lots of cool stuff. Good to feel the buzz back in the industry. It's been building up over the last 12 months for sure, but this uh, was sort of an exclamation point on the end of that sentence. And as Rich alluded to earlier, CES is not just about consumer electronics, which is one of the main reasons that embedded computing design attends in force. And one of the huge trends there, it's not even a trend anymore, it's just like it's basically half the show, is automotive tech. And a big thing that I saw from automotive tech this year was the realization of electric vehicles plus a lot of movement towards software-defined vehicles. And I know we've been hearing that for a long time, but a lot of it actually moving towards implementation. I stayed away from automotive because that's more Tierra's beat. So I'll let her comment on that. And then I'll tell you about the cool things that I saw. What did you see, Tierra, on the automotive front? Well, one of my favorite automotive technologies that I saw was actually involving automotive imaging. And it was from OWL Autonomous. It was basically incorporating HD thermal imaging and computer vision to help drivers classify objects on the road, calculate their range. And it was just different compared to using just RGB cameras for imaging. So allowing you to see objects and people at night in different weather conditions. And they had a booth there where you could step in and they actually took a picture of you and compared it with just a regular RGB camera and with their new HD thermal imaging solution. So that was cool to be completely immersed in the technology as well. Very nice. You know, one of the things on the software-defined vehicle front that sort of ties into to what you saw there, Tierra, is that there's a whole lot happening around vehicle architectures. And since ADAS and Autonomous Drive have come to the fore, plus all these electric vehicle systems are f- sort of driving a reimagination of the entire architecture in general people are trying to figure out what types of processors to use where to put them how many to layer into a vehicle um you know do you have one honking big processor with a ton of different disparate endpoints do you have a few domain controllers and really it looks like where we're moving is to have fewer processors bigger more centralized compute that manages multiple systems and subsystems and because of that you're really going to do a lot of managing of the car, truly like we've heard over the years, Tira and Rich, about data center on wheels, you know, and the connected car, really, that's being managed like a network. And that's something that people both at 
at connectivity companies like real-time innovations we're pointing out at the show as well as automotive software companies like electrobit and also nvidia i mean nonetheless so you know you really see a move across the industry towards you know this sort of newer software centric vehicle architecture that is going to be helpful in in integrating and designing in a lot of the functionality like you were just talking about with the uh, autonomous uh, ad stuff how far are we from saying and it even drives too that was something that i asked a bunch of people and it is now it's so funny there was that really high profile engineer from Google, remember who a few months ago, six months ago, maybe said that the whole autonomous drive industry is hogwash and don't, you know, don't believe it. And everybody's being led down the primrose path is we're not anywhere close to autonomous vehicles. Wow. How quickly that had a domino effect through the industry. Now everybody is saying, you know, we're, it's still a long, 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 long way off. Every single person that I talked to who's developing autonomous technology is saying, We've got a long way to go. We've got to integrate the infrastructure first. You know, this whole level four, level five thing isn't going to really work. We're going to have to jump all the way straight to level five. So how long until it drives itself? I think we're back out in the like 20 plus year, year territory now. So don't hold your breath. Interesting. One of the cooler things I saw was an AR headset. As you probably know, I've become familiar with VR headsets. When I did that teardown of the MetaQuest um, not too long ago, I became such a fan, I went out and purchased one. But I hadn't seen an AR headset before. And if, if you're not familiar with the difference, at least the difference that I'm aware of, is that with, with an AR headset, you're actually still in your home environment. You're not only in the virtual environment so yeah. you can be doing something and doing something real and virtual at the same time does that make sense yeah we actually saw something similar i think at a microchip it was one of their demos and obviously they don't make ar stuff but it was basically like a pair of glasses that kind of had an overlay right was it like that yeah it was pretty similar to that it was the it was the magic leap headset that uh -huh. i was using and it had um, an infinian time of flight sensor in it but what's interesting when you put these things on and you're doing your thing in the virtual world, the people around you don't know that you can see them. So they're all <laughs> laughing at you. But with the AR headsets, you can see that they're laughing at you, unlike the VR headsets, where you don't know that they're laughing at you. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, man. The, um, you know, one of the important things here is, I, and I know that it's, for some of our audience are like, oh man, it's no, of course you have to go to CES and other parts of our audience are probably like, why would you go to CES? You know, you're embedded guys. This is an example of why you would go to CES because the application of the AR version of this, right? The use cases in, in industrial and automotive and in, in automation in general are really, really almost limitless. Oh, huge, huge. I mean, the, the example that I always hear, which still makes a lot of sense if you're a repairman and you can be looking at a blow up and looking at the actual at the same time and manipulating the blow up at the same time you're in, in front of the real thing it's it's invaluable i would love to have that one working on my car yeah for sure that's awesome stuff actually those of you who are not as fortunate to as rich to have an ar experience or a vr headset of your own shameless self-promotion here 
we're going to be giving some away at the Smart Manufacturing Day and Metaverse Virtual Conference in a few weeks, right, Rich? That is correct. That is correct. So if you sign up for that event, you have to attend. At those sessions, we'll, we'll be pulling out a few names of people who will win those headsets. And it is well worth it. I guarantee it. It is the coolest thing I've seen in a long time. You even get to have one free hour of hanging out with Rich in the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> but those will be Oculus VRs. So uh, you can head over to embeddedcomputing.com and you'll, you'll find all the information there. What else from the show? I mean, so. One of the things that I saw, which um, I took away, it was sort of the coming out party for Matter and all yeah. the Matter connected devices. Definitely. They did their formal announcement. So I'm going to say November and, and they were, and they're shipping products now that conform to the standard. So it was, it was nice to, to see that stuff out there. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I, I somehow almost forgot, but I must've been at 10 meetings where, where matter tech was on display, you know, and yep. that's all the way from the traditional semiconductor players that we know. And some of the like, you know, short range networking guys, the actual products, like you mentioned, surprisingly, I don't know why I'm so surprised, but you know, there are already a couple hundred matter certified products on the market. Um, and here we are like two, two, like you mentioned, two, three months after the ratification of 1.0. Of yeah. course, it was, it was supposed to be ratified about six times prior to that. But, you know, as far as standards go, it, it actually moved pretty fast if you consider all the all the companies who are involved. So that's exciting and something we're going to continue tracking on embedded computing design, of course. If you need to find out more about CES and what was going on there, be sure to ask check out- Tierra. Yeah, ask Tierra. <laughs> I'm a CES pro now. To read more about CES 2023, check out the Floored CES 2023 slideshow recap series on embeddedcomputing.com. Now, Tierra is joined by Pedro Lopez Estepa, Director of Automotive at Real-Time Innovations, to discuss the adoption of software-defined vehicles. What is your definition of today's software-defined vehicles? The software-defined vehicle, it's, it's the term that everybody's trying to define right now. And depending who you talk to, obviously there are interests in this market, the answer will be different. From RTI, we see it as an evolution. It's not digital. It's not, okay, the software-defined vehicle starts and ends here. It's an evolution. So the market has been developed based on distributed computer cores or ECUs. And so far, that was effective because the evolution of the vehicles was slow. Uh, you could divide the vehicle manufacturing in, in that way simpler because you could have different tier ones that develop for you single domains or the single vehicle areas. Uh, but they have realized that that cannot be the model that will bring them to even electric or autonomous vehicles. So the market is moving towards what's called the software-defined vehicle, but there are many steps, many intermediate steps. The first step that is obvious, and, and many of the OEMs are going on RFIs, RFQs for 2025, is the Sonal architecture. The Sonal architecture is the first step that the automotive industry is taking in order to guarantee that software will have a key role and that the zones are consolidated, more effective wiring, and especially trying to, to develop applications that can move around the vehicle 
as the vehicle evolves. And then there's a second iteration, oversimplifying everything, obviously, where most of the capabilities will be in central computers. And they will be censored to central computers. So the hardware interfaces of the vehicle will be standardized. And this is a term getting really popular these days, which is the standardization of hardware. And that's the step that will define the software-defined vehicle when we can have standardized hardware interfaces and the differentiation that the vendors will make will be in software. And the RFIs will not only start with, as they have traditionally done with the hardware, but there will be a software architecture driving the vehicle value, differentiation, and key functionalities. So how does the incorporation of software and connectivity into modern vehicles affect the electronic architectures of vehicles traditionally versus what is required to support software-defined vehicles of the future? That's a great question. So how much software was in the car traditionally was limited to key functionalities. So there were a little bit of software based on CAN. CAN is a really limiting interface. So there was not a lot of stuff that we could go through there. And there was a little bit more complex software in the infotainment. That is, it's the part that has been evolving more over the past decade. And that was the most visual one to the end consumer as well. What the market has realized is that the electric vehicle opens a lot of new functionalities from charging, to communication, sensors, and that requires a complete new paradigm of software. The first level of software that is going to be integrated in addition, obviously, to the infotainment will be the one controlling all those sensors. The, the electronic vehicle is not just changing the motor, but it has a lot of differences in terms of sensors, in terms of uh, motion. So many of these vehicles are starting to add a lot of software functionality to control the electric vehicle. There's obviously another key component that has evolved over time. This is the telematics, the telematics control unit. Traditionally, telematics control unit will be something done for aftermarkets. The aftermarket was the, the main contributor of telematics. Now it's coming into the vehicle. And not only for, for fleet management, but for day-to-day -day vehicle usage. And there, it's a completely new architecture as well with vehicle to infrastructure, vehicle to vehicle, and vehicle to X whatever elder device that can communicate to it. So that's as well something that with the electric vehicle, we see much more software playing a key role in telematics. The software-defined vehicle will add another level of complexity, another layer of complexity on the electric vehicle, which is providing autonomous solution and autonomous capabilities to the vehicle. This will imply an evolution because uh, time-sensitive networks and other kind of architecture will be required where the sensors can directly controlled by the high-performance compute systems. And that's adding a level of complexity to the software uh, that is inside the vehicle that will require over-the-air updates and other kind of functionalities to be much more uh, regular than the ones that are required for infotainment or telematics. So it's a completely new paradigm that is opening in these two phases, the sonar architecture for electric and the software-defined vehicle for autonomous. So why are these architectures required for software-defined vehicles? And what will this enable that isn't already available today? So today, because of the interfaces that traditionally have been in the vehicle, the canvas and the limited use of Ethernet, if you want to take a sensor, which is in the rear left part of the vehicle, and bring that information to the front where your 
digital cluster might be located, uh, it might not even be possible. And uh, the vehicle has been developed that the chassis team does not mandatory need to talk to the infotainment team or the telematics team or the vehicle control. Um, so that presents a major limitation to what's to be the autonomous and electric vehicle, where the intent is that you might need and you might use different functionalities or so different information from sensors, not only at the vehicle, but at the cloud or at the edge. So there was a need to change that architecture to effectively bring information wherever is needed. And whatever is needed today does not mean that uh, it will be it. There is an evolution of the vehicle where tomorrow you might like to subscribe to certain application where the information from your uh, wheels, from your tires need to be sent to the cloud. And you need to think about that evolution. And that's the main reason for the new architecture. The, the previous one was not enabling the key functionalities that are derived from the electric and the autonomous vehicles. So speaking of this vehicle evolution, what do you think this will mean for the competencies and skill sets required to build cars? I have been hearing for several years how the, the vehicle is going to be simplified. Uh, members of different organizations that have never done a car can now come together and develop a car. I am really against that statement because a vehicle is one of the most complex systems that need that to be developed and produced, especially in mass production. So uh, oversimplifying the, the development to everything will be software and the hardware will be standardized. Uh, it's not making any favor to anybody. And this was visible already uh, with the, the market capitalization phase that the electric vehicle startups had during the past years. It's obvious that electric vehicles uh, manufacturers brought a lot of evolution and a lot of success into the market because they were in a great position to advance and accelerate the industry. But reaching mass production vehicles is a is a really challenging ecosystem. So I would like to divide it in three skill sets. Obviously, you will remain needing the mechanical development of the vehicle. That's not going anywhere. The fact that it's electric or it's autonomous will not bring the mechanical aspects of the vehicle out of the development. So they will remain being essential. There's a second layer that will be heavily reinforced. The balance between hardware and software engineers will be slightly moving towards more software development than hardware development, but still the hardware will remain being essential to the success because a, a good hardware design will be key in order to guarantee the performance of the software. But it's, it's more, more than evident that most of the OEMs, most of the tier ones are focusing on enhancing the software capabilities. And there is a third layer that often people don't talk about it, which is the legal and liability aspect of this. Uh, the, these teams will require not only lawyers to, that know about the liabilities and the implications, but they will need technical experts with an understanding of the law and the standardizations and regulations that can understand really, really well the implications and the liabilities of a given design, that they understand the implications of a safety strategy, a cybersecurity strategy, because they can potentially influence or impacting negatively heavily the vehicle and the, obviously the OEM. So I will summarize it with the mechanical that remain, 
the technical hardware, software, but giving a lot of importance to cybersecurity, safety, and legal technical expertise that will come really as a mandate in most of the OEMs and tier ones. So does this put the car in the hands of whoever is supplying the most software or the most significant software? I believe being able to produce more than 10,000 vehicles a year is not trivial. So obviously there are many, many layers of complexity to this question. The amount of acquisitions that have been going on in the industry over the past few years, especially in software, from 2015 to 2019, there were a lot of acquisitions in hardware, many vendors, uh, semiconductor vendors, and even tier ones were acquiring hardware vendors. We're talking, for example, Harman, Samsung, uh, the acquisitions in the hardware vendors like uh, Qualcomm trying to acquire NXP, then acquiring Cypress and, and all those, those acquisitions. But that was the trend that the industry took at that time that they thought, okay, I can dominate if I am able to consolidate my bill of material and bundle my solution. Now, they have realized that software will pay a key aspect in, in, in this environment. So the software acquisitions are happening. There are few software independent entities as such as RTI in the industry these days. So obviously having a supply chain that consistently support your software defined transition and Daimler with Cariad, for example, right now are trying to do that. There are two organizations that are trying to do that, but Cariad is a great example of of underestimating maybe the implications of bringing a software architecture. So it's not only bringing a lot of resources, what will make you faster. It's as well understanding the ecosystem and surrounding you with the best ecosystem. So answering your question, I think that it will be a consolidation between those who are in the market since a long time and have the manufacturing power, which is extremely costly, and those who can define an ecosystem that enable them to differentiate and be a more attractive brand through the software defined vehicle. How do you think automotive supply chains are reorganizing to support this transition? The industry is talking a lot about cooperation, but with the left hand, they are saying cooperation and with the right hand, they are acquiring resources and, and organizations. So if we look at the, at the tier ones and the supply chain, most of the tier ones have acquired one or various software organizations in the last year. So the majority of the of the tier ones, they see software as another way to keep the OEMs um, breaking the car and giving it in part to the industry for a more effective cost development. So the the industry is going in two phases. There is one phase that is the one that in RTI we believe is the right one, which is cooperation. Uh, we are part of Covisa, uh, we are part of SOFI and Autosar as well as ABCC. The Autosar is, is a consortium that has been providing an ecosystem and a standard ecosystem for many years. So the industry, all the suppliers have been going there and standardizing. Covisa and SOFI try to do that as well for cloud-based development as well as for vehicle development. So we believe that the ecosystem going in that direction because the, most of the OEMs and tier ones are there, they are trying to make sure that there's a certain level of standardization 
so they can focus on creating value on top of that. That's the part where in RTA we believe is the, the right way. And we are, Autosar have proven that, and we are mostly sure that Covisa and Sophie will do that as well. The other part of the industry, and, and even those who are part of, of Covisa, Sophie, and this layer, large consortia, they are going on the path of acquisitions. Over the most of the TO1s in the industry has acquired at least one software company in the last year. So that's, they are trying to prepare themselves as well to offer a complete reference system or, or board system, reference boards, they call it, and a software framework of some kind to the OEMs. The need of enabling co-development is essential and enabling co-development with, with the right level of liabilities and a legal framework is essential as well. And we see that one of the biggest challenges that the industry will face is that doesn't even matter that the T1s or the main suppliers will remain acquiring organizations oversimplifying the picture to the OEMs. We are seeing more and more than the lack of a realistic software framework, including liabilities, will make that in a certain moment, vehicles will come to the fields and to the roads, and there will be a situation where everybody will look at each other and see whose problem is that there's this failure. And over the air update will solve some of it, but it will not solve it all. And that's the part where, as an enabler, being the glue in the industry, we are trying as well to emphasize to many OEMs, like don't look only at the technology, look at your framework and how you are defining this feature that it can be realistic and that it can provide value to the end consumer because we cannot forget the end consumer need to see value in all what we are doing. And that at the same time, it's realistic for them to use. And that from the little software organization to the large OEM, everybody understand the value of the feature and they, everybody has a realistic liability defined around it, which for hardware is really easy because the industry based most of the hardware design in standard qualifications. So from the I2C to the SPI, all of those interfaces are standardized and the way to produce hardware for automotive with ICQ grade, it's standardized, but that does not exist for software. And the need of a framework to cooperate and make it realistic into the vehicles, it's a, it's a must. And, and the industry often focused on just the technology and not on the big picture enabling the industry realistically to develop software for the vehicles. Learn more about the advances in automotive technology at www.rti.com. Finally, on DevTalk with Rich and Vin, the two are discussing why Python, JavaScript, and other scripting languages aren't a threat to the C programming language. Hello, and welcome to another edition of DevTalk with Vin and Rich. See, Vin, I put you first this time. Isn't that, wasn't that nice of me? I appreciate that very much. <laughs> So here we want to talk about, well, the, the original subject was, should people be using C or C++? And then I threw in there, why, well, everybody's just using Python today. Let's just use Python and, and move on. And I got a feeling that you vehemently disagree with that. Oh, man, dude, this is like one of my favorites. I'm so glad you, that you picked this topic. Well, I just oh, like to use the word vehemently. So it was worth it just for that. There you go. There you go. <laughs> First of all, in terms of using Python, 
if you're using a scripted language or a scripting language, even if it's compiled, I mean, there are people who make compilers for JavaScript for embedded. There are things fundamental to those languages that make them less efficient. Uh, and less efficient has a lot of implications uh, when we're talking about embedded systems. Efficiency could be execution speed. It could be code size. It could be a combination of both. I mean, one really good example is in C or C++, you're, you're discreetly declaring variables as a type, which means you can have smaller entities or larger entities, depending on whether you really need to deal with a float or whether you are just dealing with an eight an eight bit number. So in terms of um, RAM efficiency, SRAM efficiency, uh, and even accessing them and processing the data, the, the algorithms are much smaller to process an eight bit number if you're multiplying or adding two eight bit numbers versus doing two floats. So to put that in really practical terms, you're using the processor less to do the same thing. Using the processor less and the processor resources like memory, both in code storage and and in uh, in variable storage. Well, that uh, would make it more efficient. Yeah, it's much more efficient <laughs> in, in in C than in Python. Python is using you know all variables, right? They're all the same internally, uh, the way they're represented, and so all the algorithms are the same, whether you're trying to multiply two floats or or two eight bit numbers. Yeah, but it's easier to get your design out the door with Python because it's an easier language to work in. Okay, well, this is one of Ask my- Ask any high school kid, they'll tell you. This, yes, and, and honestly, that's one of the things that defines the difference between a maker and an engineer. A maker has to make one work, an engineer has to make- You sound like you're taking the gloves off here. I'm taking the gloves off because this is kind of a hot, a, a really a hot subject because people look at it all the time. And if you look at, what is it, 54 billion IoT devices we're talking about, if you look at anything that's doing energy harvesting, power is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. Every year, there, there's an organization that lists the greenness of programming languages from most green to least green. And C is always up near the top, even above C++. And things like JavaScript and Python. But is that are, fair? I mean, it's it's how you program with the language, not the language itself. It's not just you that. You could be inefficient in C just as... You, you certainly could, yes. Everyone can do things poorly. The question is, are the resources there to allow you to do them really, really well and really small? As a maker, you're making something for yourself. As an engineer, you're designing something that's going to be used, hopefully, around the world. And you need to take all of those things into account. And the, I don't want to say the greenness of the language, but the right sizing of the code that a language produces is really, really important. I will say that the embedded tools for C++ have gotten dramatically better in the last 10 years. It used to be um, that code size was much, much larger if you took the same code and rewrote it from C to C++ and took advantage of objects and everything else. Some of the embedded compiler tools and, and, and optimizer tools now, first of all, I joke about this, but C++ was invented to stop really bad programmers from making major mistakes. You don't have global variables anymore. There's data hiding. You don't mistakenly change the value of a variable somewhere that you didn't realize affected something else. And back when C++ was invented, programs were still relatively small. The 
advent of the ability to do data hiding and encapsulation and all of that allowed us to build bigger programs that can run well with fewer bugs for sure. But 80% of the embedded systems that are shipping today are less than 32K of code space and less than 8K of uh, SRAM. And so do you really need a language that is that powerful to run systems that are that small? I don't know. And if you were bringing objects into memory and you needed to keep track of how many instantiations there are so that when they all go away, you can get rid of the code that supports it, that's great. But if you are a flash-based single image program on an MCU, for example, that code's there anyway. You're not loading it into RAM and unloading it to make room for something else. So do you really need to keep track of all of that? There are lots of libraries and things that make C++ programming more efficient from the programming side. So let me ask you this. When should you be using Python? And don't say never. No, I wouldn't say never. It's actually great for writing some simple one-off programs or things that you use periodically to do some data massaging on a desktop. There are some cloud services that actually let you write support code in the cloud to manipulate data that's come in from, let's say, an IoT device before you do something with it. And they support Python to do that. And that's really great. It, it's a scripting language and it should be used to do things that would be scripted as opposed to something that, I don't know, you'd call it hard-coded or something that you want to really compile down to something very small. If you're running it in the interpreter, it also runs much more slowly than something that is compiled to native code for the particular device. And so- But in most cases, that doesn't matter because you have so much processing power at your disposal anyway. You do, unless you're trying to commutate a motor and you have to do it within a certain number of milliseconds or, or microseconds in some right. way. So, I mean, for sure, certain data types like strings, which don't exist in C and do exist in C++, make the programmer's life easier. But one of my three favorite interview questions is, what's more important, the cost of the device or the, or the time and cost to develop it? The cost of the device is almost always more important if you're working in a company that's shipping, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of, or, or even millions of devices. A few extra hours of engineering or a few extra days or even weeks, that removes 20 cents from a device, which could mean smaller memory size, which could be a slower clock, is worth it to put that effort into the engineering. So it's not just how quickly can I get the code out? All of these advanced languages are great for prototyping because you can move things around right away and figure out the logic and figure out the UI. But when you're finally developing the product, C is still probably the best language, C++, second, and all these other languages a big distance. Thanks for listening to this edition of Embedded Insiders. For more daily news, videos, and podcasts, visit our website at embeddedcomputing.com.